Hello and welcome to the podcast series Raw Talent with me Fiona Abrahams where I'm deep diving behind the scenes into the careers, aspirations and inspiration of the many skills and talented individuals who enable the fashion and creative industries to feed our passion for clothing and product. Throughout this podcast series I will be reaching out to the global community, exploring the industry through their eyes, asking people to share insights about the work they do, how they got started, their most compelling experiences, the trials and tribulations they have faced and overcome, who they have met along the way, the lasting friendships formed, the part culture plays in the work they do, and their thoughts on their futures and the future of the industry as we navigate the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome to Series 2, Episode 2 of Raw Talent, where today I am chatting with brand consultant Russell Hammond. Our paths first crossed back in 2009 as the global financial crash was biting and the job market was in turmoil similar to today. Russell and I, independently of one another, set up businesses and he approached me to find him a business partner. I was super busy at the time in a one-person business and completely forgot to get back to him. Can you imagine? However, our paths crossed again a couple of years later and we have been regular collaborators ever since. Fast forward 10 years and a global pandemic, and we are both in a rebuilding phase as the fashion industry shakes itself down and maps new pathways aimed at addressing sustainability, purpose and impact. lovely to see you hi welcome to raw talent thank you for being my guest today my pleasure it's going to be exciting i think yeah we've got lots to talk about we always have lots to talk about that's true yeah so i think we should start by telling everybody how we met do you remember the story or shall i recount it um, I only re- I remember that we started business around about the same time. I started consulting with Malta when you when you launched your business, but I don't remember. It must have been about a role, some sort of role. Yeah, I think you you reached out. I don't know how we were put in touch. I don't know whether it was through mutual contacts or you randomly found me. But I remember you emailed me and said, "Oh, I'm looking for a business partner." and Can you help me find somebody? I feel like I've set this business up. I've got too much work and. I need another pair of hands. Yeah. And I remember we spoke um, and then I got super, super busy. I was just massively panicked at running my own business because I had never ultimately wanted to do that. I'd wanted to, I just thought I'd go out and work for another company having been made redundant with the global financial crash. And instead I found myself running my own business. And um, I think I was just so panicked about whether I would be able to do it that I ended up becoming overwhelmed with work and I didn't get back to you. <laughs> you said yes. You said yes to everything. Yeah, well, I think with the best of intentions, I did. <laughs> you have to, I think. You have to. You my, my, my mother was a singer and um, she, her, her philosophy in life was um, to always say yes because you never know when the phone's going to stop ringing. Such a good, such good advice. But you've just got to make sure you're able to, in some sense, you're able to do it. So I didn't realise you didn't get back to me. I don't think I got back to you. I'm sure that's what happened. I'm sure that... And then I think you met Malta, I think, just through... No, what it was, well, we'd already met. So we were looking for... So our our, our sort of raison d'etre, and and it has been ever since, is that we're a network of consultants. So we're always looking for experts and we I think we were at the time looking for an expert on um communications uh, uh, on sales related yeah it was something sales related I sales or, or or yeah we, oh that's right yes it was it was wholesale sales. Um, it was wholesale yeah, yeah. Wholesale. and um yeah because we, we we felt like we needed some some uh, you had a gap didn't you and you had a load yeah, of work exactly. Um, yeah and so yeah that's right that's that's what we were <laughs> yeah, how funny yeah. well let's let's uh let me ask you this you know i don't think i've ever asked you this question but where did you grow up and sort of what inspired you to work in the fashion and creative industries how did it all uh, begin my life has always been full of glamour um i, I grew <laughs> up in, Il- in ilford in essex so did my mom that's really funny uh, another yeah, ilford person uh, yeah an ilford boy yeah wow 
yeah, I used to go down to, to um, South End and in my, my friend had an XR3i and we were down there on the My mum had an XR3i. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always, always full of the glamorous lifestyle. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I grew up there, and uh, but but I was always I, I always was surrounded by creatives. As I say, my my mother was a, a singer, singer. Uh, my father was an actor. Wow. So, um, I, I I was sort of my my childhood was spent dealing with um, performers and musicians and other actors and directors and producers and different people. Um, and it just was normal to me. And it was normal that, that I well, watched the bill on a Saturday or the Wednesday night and my dad was sort of in it, you know, and you sort of think, oh, that's, that's, that. oh, that's an episode he did. Oh, great. And pantomimes was spent um, watching my mum from the stage, from the, the, the wings, um, oh. watching her sing, you know, on, on the stage. So it was a sort of a creative environment and creative household. And, and the, the one thing I was sure of, um, after I was 18 and I, I, I did my A-levels, I did Theatre Studies A-level, um, and I did a, a few TV like appearances and different things. Um, and the one thing I was sure of was that I was never going to be an actor. I never wanted to be an actor because um, all actors were poor. Um, and I didn't want to be poor. Um, I was in Ilford and we were, we were at a nice house, but we were never rich. We were never, it was never full of money. Um, and I thought, well, I, I want this bit of more of a security. So I decided I didn't want to be an actor, but I enjoyed the creativity and the creative... Um, being around creative people, I felt like I got them, you know what I mean? Yes, I but, do. Uh, and it's yeah, very similar, it's actually, when I you work with fashion. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're dealing with very similar personalities, for sure. How interesting. There's, yeah, there's oh. definitely a difference. There's definitely a difference in a creative person's way of thinking. Yeah. Um, a creative person doesn't think laterally by definition. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't be creative. Um, and you have to talk to them differently, not in a patronising way, but often some people feel that that's, that's the case, but in fact, it's different. It, it, you have to express ideas and, and, and um, concepts in a, in a different way. Um, and it's something I just sort of do. Um, and I didn't realise until I got into the fashion industry, and one of the reasons I went into the fashion industry was because of that skill or that experience, was that, that not everybody does that and not everybody thinks that way. Um, so, yeah, I've been able to... a good marriage. To, uh, yeah, to be able to use that childhood experience to, to, to good effect. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. I understand that. What was the driving force at the start of your career? Um, how did you get started? Um, well, I started by um, failing. Um, okay. I failed my A-levels. Um, I, I went in, I, did, I got three E's. I was predicted two B's and a C. Um, but, I, but unfortunately um, for my academic career, um, at the age of 17, I got my first girlfriend. Um, <laughs> so, so, Lost interest. Yeah. Unfortunately, yes, the, the XR3I's uh, trips were stopped, which is good. Um, but unfortunately, so those were stopped too, because she'd already left school. Um, and oh, so she had a job. Um, and she couldn't understand why I bothered doing my homework, and neither could I. So I just stopped. And I thought, well, I got, I did quite well GCSEs, so you know, A levels probably just be the same. Um, and so I was predicted two Bs and a C. I had my university place lined up, and I got three Es. Oh. And I woke up in the next morning realizing that I basically had to sort of get a job or do something because I'd, I'd completely failed. Um, oh. And it, it was quite a it was quite a moment for me to I wake bet. up. It was a bit, of a, a, a bit of a reality that, drop. Yeah, so I thought I'd take a year out um, and reapply. Okay. And so you know, next, next year I'll be uh, applying. That that year out is still I'm still on that year out. Uh, oh I never goodness. went. I never, I never went to university, so I I started work. Um, oh and I started uh, doing a. Um, I did odd jobs here and there, labouring here and there, different yeah. things for a few weeks, a month or so. Um, I worked for the Civil Aviation Authority and signed the Official Secrets Act. Amazing. Um, so that, so to this day, I'm, that's, that, that, no, no long, that, that lives with you forever. So, yes. Um, I can, uh, yeah, I can, I can see official that's, documents. That's um, quite a thing to be able to um, yeah. say that you've done. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, and um, so, yeah, different things. And then I, I fell into um, working for, in customer service for British Telecom, uh, oh. BT. Okay. So I, I, the pe when, when people wanted to move house, um, of course, it was before the days of mobile phones, they had to get a, a change their landline. Um, so they used to phone me up and say, I want to move house or my, I want to pay my bill or my phone's got a problem, whatever. Um, and, and I really, really loved it. 
um, because it gave me three different things. Um, it gave me the experience of, of doing a job, which was which is what I enjoyed. I realised that I really enjoyed working. I didn't really like school. I thought school was boring and hard work, but this, this felt like not work for me. This felt like just talking to people and helping them, and I really enjoyed that. Um, the second thing it taught me was that I was quite good with computers um, and quite good at helping people understand things that other people couldn't understand. Okay. And the third thing was that I really enjoyed working with women because um this we were in an office with a full of 80 women and f- me and four other guys and <laughs> four other guys um were terrified of all these all these all these women who who were basically in charge uh, and and completely dominant um and i really liked it i thought it was great um and so i've been in female dominated industry then from from then on and i really enjoyed it i really i really loved it and and conversely i think if i'd have been in a sort of a male dominated environment i would feel a bit strange and 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 i wouldn't feel comfortable um so yeah that was my sort of first experience and then i went from there then i, I joined uh, manpower got in recruitment yeah um, and so that makes me probably the worst possible client for any recruitment consultant, uh, because I always try and suggest what they should do differently. And when, oh. when I meet people like you who know what they're doing and, and who are professional, um, it's, we get along great. But for, for the, the other, other types of agencies out there who aren't quite as good and quite professional, uh, I think I'm quite a difficult client because, because I know how it should be done. Um, yes. So I was doing that for... You basically butt heads with them. Uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Um, and so, but that was great. That gave me a really good grounding because it taught me how to manage people. Yes. Um, and uh, since then, for the last 25 years, I've been, been managing people and that's part of the, uh, that's been part of the really fun part um, of my career is, is, is seeing people grow and, and encouraging talent and encouraging people who are just at the beginning of their journey and also perhaps have gone down the wrong path or, or a challenging path and helping them along. Yeah. Um, and manpower gave me the, the, the basic skills and the, and the basic um, disciplines to know how to approach all sorts of different situations. So I stayed there two years uh, and then I realized I wanted to leave manpower and wanted to get out of recruitment because I didn't want to do that anymore. Um, and I realized I couldn't get out. And I, I, luckily for you, Fiona, you, you've not had to leave recruitment, but I wanted to leave. And every time I went into an agency, they say, oh, um, well, you know, you're, you're in recruitment at the moment. We've got a job. You could, you could come and work for us. And then I used to say, I don't, I don't want to be in recruitment anymore. Mm-hmm. And they used to say, oh, oh, don't, don't want to be in recruitment. Oh, we're too good for you. Oh, we're, you're too good for us, are you? Oh, well, okay. And then I'm sure they threw my application away. They were offended that I didn't want to be in recruitment. So I couldn't get out. And then my old boss phoned me and said, look, there's this job going for this old-fashioned raincoat company called Burberry. Have you heard of them? I said, Burberry? Isn't, yeah, I think so. My, my grandma wore, wore their raincoats. Yeah, that's right. It's in Hackney. It's a bit of a dump. Um, but it might be it might be interesting for you. It's customer service. You've done a bit of customer service. Go and have a chat with them. Oh, okay. So I went along and and uh, I had to speak French and German um, because it was dealing with the the Northern European sales at the time. Uh, and I met a um, my guy who was going to be my boss then for the next sort of six or seven years uh, called Mr. Kerr. I had to call him Mr. Kerr, not not Robert Kerr. Really? Um, and um, he tested me on my French, but didn't test me on my German, which was very handy because I didn't actually speak German. Speaking, I was going to say uh, you don't speak German. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, did, I, did, I did learn German. I did learn German for two years. So it is true that on my GC, on my application form, my GCSEs, well, one of them was German. And I, got, I think I got a C in German or a B in German. Um, so I did get the exam, but I couldn't remember any of it. It would have been two years, and one of those things that flies out of your brain, um, you don't yeah. remember it anymore. Um, but luckily, he didn't test me on it. Um, and uh, and for, for what some crazy reason, he gave me the job, because I didn't, do, didn't know anything about fashion. I'd never <laughs> sold any rainwear, and I didn't speak <laughs> German. But yet he gave me the job. Of yes, he just liked you. He must have saw, seen something. I don't know what <laughs> yes. he, he, um, and he's, he's amazing. He actually recently retired. He's an amazing character. And he, he was so helpful in my career. He was one of these sort of father figures that I had. And you, I'm sure everybody's had them in their career where you have these people that, that you look up to and you think one day I'd like to be like you. And he was so serene and so charming and so, um, yeah, he was a bit of a bon, bon viveur, brilliant sense of humour, but very formal. And very serious, and the, the the sort of person you imagine working for the royal family or someone like that. He was yes. he was an amazing amazing character, and as I say, oh, only recently retired. But spent like thirty years at Burberry. 
Wow. So yeah, and then I was twelve years at Burberry and uh, and and uh, learnt my learnt my career there, and then two years at um, Temperley, Alice Temperley, and then. Um, I'm going to pause you here. Going back to Burberry, so my yeah. next question was going to be: as your career has unfolded, have you actively guided the trajectory, or have you reacted to opportunities in the market? And within Burberry, you were there for 12 years. It's a long time. How did you navigate that? How did you? What was your progression path from customer service? Um, I think it's the own. Uh, it's funny. It's a sort of a. Um, some designers do this. Not none of my clients, but in in the past where I used to work for brands, um, creative directors used to write the inspiration for the collection after yeah. the collection was created. They used to look at it and say, okay, this is, this is the product, this is the range. Now, what was my inspiration? Let's make something up to make it sound good, as if it was a, as if it was a clearly linear path. And it's obvious <laughs> that, you know, I, I, I researched um, colonialism in the 1890s, and I found that this was, the, this was some cool things, and I decided that I was going to... No, it was nothing to do with it. You, just, you, you came up with it. It was, a, it was a, a, an abstract path. It's a creative abstract part. You don't know. You don't know what you're going to create. Otherwise, um, the, the job would be boring. So it's only after the fact that you can rehistoricize and say, "Oh, well, I did all this." And I think it's the same. The same can be said for most people's careers. I think very few people's careers are, are, are planned out, unless you're sort of a, a doctor or a lawyer and you've trained for a particular vocation. I think it's it's um, it's more what falls in your lap. And that's certainly the case for me. And as I, as I said so far, it was a bit of a, a roller coaster ride of, from one failure to an opportunity to a success. Mm. Um, but my, my dad gave me a very good lesson um, at the beginning of my career. He said, Russell, make sure that you do two things in your career. You do things that you like, because if you like it, then you won't have to work and it won't be hard work and you won't mind working. Um, and always make sure you're learning. If you're learning, then it's likely that you're going to progress. And if you're going to progress, then it's likely you're going to get some money and you're going to, you're going to be secure. The moment you stop enjoying what you do, the moment you stop learning is the moment you should change jobs and move and move on. That um, and that's really, the, that's really the, the advice I've stuck with. And, yeah. and for 12 years, my, my role progressed and progressed. That's and it progressed because um, I think because I, I, I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, Bravo, Miss Bravo, um, who was my boss, she, she took over two years yeah. into my tenure at Burberry and, and yeah. shook the company up. Uh, and really? some people fell through the cracks and couldn't cope. Um, okay. And other people thrived. And I was one of those people that, that was in, in the right place. Right. People was able thrived. to, to yeah. thrive and, and understand what she wanted and, and be yeah. part of that change rather yeah. than part of the, part of the, sort of the, the objection to it. Yeah, um, she was a really inspirational character, and I have yeah, so many. I know so many people that worked under her. I was recruiting for Burberry at that time as well, um, and it was it was an amazing. It was so exciting what they were doing, just the transformation they were going through. It was yeah, really one special. The, um, one of the things she she was very clever at um, was um, whenever you have a turnaround, and you, we've seen some turnarounds recently. I mean, Radley is probably uh-huh. one of the most interesting ones recently, but um, a Mulberry sort of a turnaround. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, Hunter. Um, and yeah. the interesting thing about turnarounds is that that you need to be very careful about what you keep and what you throw out. Yes. Because you don't want to um, sort of coin a phrase, throw the baby out of the bathwater. You want to make mm-hmm. sure that you hold on to the things that are of value and discard the things that are clutter and discard the things that are holding you back. And yeah. she was very clever at knowing what to hold on to. Because a lot of people at the time was, were, were telling her that she should get rid of the cheque. The cheque was, was, was old-fashioned old and boring and nobody, nobody cared about it. But she it yeah. Hold on to it. But she, she was clever that she knew that she couldn't keep it as it was. She had to reinvent it. And um, the, the genius that was Roberto Menichetti um, invented the, the, what he call, called Nova Cheque, which is new cheque. Um, and which sort of kick-started the company when Kate wore that as a, as a bikini. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was quite a, it was, it was a fascinating time in hindsight, but at the time, um, was sort of normal I did, mm. because I didn't know any different, you know, I'd go and come from BT you know, and, and manpower where yeah. you was trying to find lorry drivers jobs. You know, I, it was, it was going from that to, to suddenly on the coattails of, of, of a, of a brand that measured its success in multiples of growth. You know, what, we're only eighty percent ahead of last year. What are we doing wrong? You know, was the was the question. Wow, um, that's amazing. And, 
and it, and it just became the norm. And yeah. managing and understanding businesses that have that trajectory um, turns out quite rare. <laughs> you know, most most people have understanding of businesses that aren't really performing very well and how to turn them around or or how to fix fall, failing businesses. Whereas I understand how to help growing businesses and how to manage growth because that's the worst type of pain and stress is to have the growth and to screw it up. Absolutely, um, it's, it's bad enough saying. Yeah, it's bad enough saying that I don't. I'm, I'm never. I'm never going to get into Selfridges, or I'm never going to get the keys to my own store. It's what, even more stressful to say I'm in Selfridges and can't deliver, or I've got. I'm, I've got the store, but I've got no manager to open it, or no manager yes. to run it. Yeah, so, it's yeah it's, um, Would you say that's been sort of one of the major learnings from your experience? Um, yeah, I think so. The, 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 I, I think that the, the major learnings for me have been about how much people matter. I didn't expect um, that at the beginning of my career that the fashion industry was all about people. Mm. I thought the fashion industry was all about product, right. and about clothes, and about creative. And it is about creative, of course. Creative is at the heart of everything. It should be the heart of, heart of everything. But actually, it's about people on the one hand. The two pillars are the people and the data. Yeah. People and data. If you can get those right, and connect them in the right way at the right time, and then I think you'll have success. Those are the two major factors of success. If you have the wrong people yeah. with the right data or the right people with the wrong data, yes. um, you, you're, you're in trouble. Yeah, um, and, and my career has been trying to put those things together. You know? Yeah, and we've both seen many uh, variations on that, on that theme, I think, um, over the last 10 years for sure through our yeah. collaborations haven't we um it's it's a fascinating thing and data in today's market more so now than ever um is absolutely critical um right. more than it's ever been in the in the age of internet shopping where everybody's online and um it's been fascinating to see traditional bricks and mortar brands like john lewis um suddenly needing to ramp up their e-commerce because they thought they had it all sorted and then they discovered, oh my God, everyone's rushed online, but we've got gaps. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I think what, what sometimes is misunderstood is that um, the people that are from sort of traditional retail, um, so uh, the sort of legacy brick and mortar retail, um, you know, going back 10, 15 years, if we could tell, if you could say to them, I'm going to tell you, the demographics of every consumer that's going to walk in your store. I'm going to tell you exactly what they all looked at. I'm going to tell you how long they spent in the store. And I'm going to tell you when they left the store and what the last thing they looked at before leaving the store. Um, I'd be like, oh, I'll pay millions for that data. <laughs> so that, that data is just there, sitting yeah. ready. But yeah. people don't know how to use it. No, and they that's don't. And actually, the data doesn't mean you can analyze it and understand what to do with it. No, and actually, also, I think another gap I see is that, regardless of business sizes, if you have people at tops of businesses, regardless of the size of the business or their backgrounds, that don't really understand the age of online shopping or how the data analytics work, that in itself is a is a roadblock because it sets the business backwards. They've got to be influential people in the top management team, however big or small a company is, that really understand how to convey the message of how essential the data is. And I think we see in these legacy businesses in particular where that doesn't always come together. So, And I I think that it's only recently, in fact, for me, it's only been in the last um, three or four years, where I mean I've been dealing with data for the last 25 years on my, my background is merchandising I was merchandising yes. and uh and at Aquascutum but um probably 70 percent of my time as a merchandiser was spent gathering and filtering and pivoting and vlookuping and CSVing and yeah. data exporting and and trying to get the data get to the data, the data. and then another 20 percent of it trying to figure out what the data is telling me and then there was the final 10% convincing the people who were making the decisions that my data was the right data, that it was better or more accurate or more up to date than the guy next to me data yeah. or the one that, and, and, and in the last, say, three or four years, you know, working with um, Microsoft tools like, like you know, to business information tools like Power BI, um, where everything is basically there 
that 70% of the time is then would have been gone and yes. the, the data would be ready to go. I mean, I remember Monday mornings being horrible for me, having to, I spent Monday morning literally just doing reports all morning, ready for my two o'clock meeting on Tuesday yeah. um, to present the data to Rosemary Bravo, Mike Metcalf and everybody else. And, and I spent, yeah, I, let, I, I, I lost a day and a half a week preparing data that would be now today at my fingertips with Power BI. It's just there, ready to go. Um, so yeah, it's it's it then it's trying to make sure it's used in the right way and that the data is telling you something and it's trying to hear the data. You know, that's yeah. the, the challenge. Absolutely, a hundred percent. What would you say are the top three strengths that you've developed and refined as your career has evolved? Um, it's difficult to tell because my career has always been on the coattails of creatives. And so I don't see myself as having any particular strengths. It's the, it's for, for me, it's always been about the, the creative and my clients now are creatives and it's about them and their success. But I suppose it's, it's about trying, it's about understanding people, about understanding what motivates people and, and trying to persuade um, the people, the, the employee's boss to maybe be a bit more um, thoughtful about the way they're treating them and about trying to influence the, 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 some company culture in that sense. So it's really understanding people. facilitating for people to listen more yeah. and engage um, in a more effective way. Um, manipulating data, understanding how data works um, and understanding the crash between data and IT and coding and, 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 and um, you know, all those sort of boring analytical things. Yeah. Um, and then the third part is, is understanding how creatives think. Um, yeah. And, under, and, and converting what is a sort of a cold spreadsheet of numbers into something that a creative that it sings to them and, and they get it and they understand. I remember at Burberry one, one time somebody saying to me, you know what, um, you know, these finance people come to me and they tell me all these margin figures and numbers and operating expense, but I never understand it. But when you tell, you tell me it, Russell, it makes sense to me. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think that they, they I, it, sometimes what used to happen, not necessarily at Burberry, but in companies in general, people who aren't creative, particularly maybe from finance backgrounds or from more sort of corporate backgrounds, they tend to, over egg the complexity of some of these things so they say, yeah. oh, you're creative you you wouldn't understand you know, these these numbers but actually you know the proof at burberry was that that if you gave creatives the keys to the filing cabinet and the and the and the power to be able to do what they wanted um then you get a successful brand because they're the whoever's between the creative and the consumer is in the way um, yeah, that makes and, sense. and Rosemary Bravo definitely believed that. And you know, one of the reasons that 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 I'm I'm passionate about the industry is 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 to try and make sure that that stays true. And e-commerce and, and analytics and and direct to consumer is 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 a path towards that that Nirvana goal. Absolutely. And how do you manage the expectations of decision makers? Um, you know, you work you've worked as a consultant with a lot of different brands. Mm-hmm. How do you steer the ship? Or how do you help them steer the ship? Um, I think you, you, a lot of consultants tend to, and I, I've had experience of, of, of my colleagues sort of working, not, not colleagues in the Scaffold Network, but colleagues that I've seen uh, in the field working with other clients. And, and yeah. they tend to tell the business what to do. Right. And I never feel that that's my job. I don't feel my job is to say, um, right, um, Mary, you need to um, stop your shows now. You need to move your show from London to, to Greece. That, that is not my job. No. My job is to say, um, let's think about shows and let's think about London and let's think about um, how you're going to spend your marketing pounds. Um, what's the best bang for buck? And let, lay out the options and, and get them to come to their own conclusions i'm not the business owner i don't run their business um and i'll probably get it wrong just as much as they do so it's not my job to make their decision my job is to is to is to share the benefits of my experience and my mistakes um and share the benefit of of my um knowledge of of the industry and of others um, and also hold up a mirror to themselves and say to them what's motivating you to do this yeah. And sometimes when they explain it to them, when they explain it to me, they then become 
clearer that it's the right thing to do or clearer that they were doing it for the wrong reasons and therefore okay. they closed the attack. That makes and sense. So that's good. Yeah, it's so your bouncing board. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and and it's it's but it's more than a sounding board because it's an informed sounding board. It's not yeah, a exactly. some people have some people have life coaches that 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 sort of act as sort of bit psychologists, and that's not that's not our role. Not the same we're, thing. We're, no. not, we're not we're not qualified to do that. But second of all, we're we're sort of more than a psychologist because a psychologist is only interested in the psychological aspect. In the psychological of it, aspect. We're, we we understand the industry side of it. That's it. Um, and so, although it, it has been said several times that, that some of our sessions, Malta and I, when we work with with clients, they say, "Oh, feels like I, I've just been in a in a, a sort of a counselling session or a psychological <laughs> session because it, it, it is psychological, particularly when it's you're dealing with consumers." You know, yeah. a, I've had people say exactly the same thing to me. I have that feedback all the time from candidates. Yeah, I'll I'll just post questions that sort of get them to reflect on certain things they may have thought or said. And it is really important because having somebody sort of banter with you on certain points or questions, certain motives actually helps you find your way. It's, it's really useful. And sometimes we, um, we fulfill the role of a chairman in, so the, yes, you do corporate governance structure in the, in the UK, there's this sort of um, perfect world scenario where you have a chairman that is yes. in control of a CEO and the CEO is in control of the board. And you have this sort of ideal of chairman and, and non-exec directors who are act as a sort of a shepherd and guiding hand to, to a CEO. But that very, very rarely is the case. They usually are, they're far, far more, have their own agenda and particularly chairman, uh, have their own agenda and, and own priorities and, and their own acts to grind. Whereas mm. for, for us, we are truly independent. There yes. is nobody paying us except the You're client. You're completely impartial. And, and there's no, we're, we're, we have no axe to grind with any of the employees. We don't care. We don't want a career with the, with the brand. We've got no power. We've got no political power. Um, so we're free to say what we want. And people are free to tell us what, 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 they, what they want. Yeah. Um, and so we act as a sort of the glue sometimes um, to stick the team together and to encourage them forward and to, to sometimes act as a sounding board with employees. And there's, there's lots of different roles we fulfill. And sometimes we have to be careful about um, you know, confidentiality and, 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 uh, and, and things that, that we need to make sure that we're, we're acting in, in, the, in, in the right way. And um, uh, it's, it's all part of the role of, of a good consultant. But, you know, I, as I say, I see some of these people who call themselves consultants to just give the, um, just tell them what to do and, and trying to get them to, to give them a job, a full-time job. I mean, it's, that's, not, that's not consulting. No, that's not consulting. <laughs> I wouldn't have done 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> well, looking back on the last 10 years, what would you say has been sort of the most poignant experience in, in all the brands that you've worked with? Um, what would be your best experience? Um. It's difficult. To, I think probably my best experience. There's probably two best, three best experiences. If I can say that. <laughs> Sorry, um, my best experience. My first best experience was when I, when when we scored our first major client, okay. um, and that was Merica Transu in yeah. 2009. Um, she just started out, um, and um, it's at that point that I realised, wow, there are geniuses in this business. Aww. There are people who are like Rosemary Bravo and Christopher Bailey and all the people that, and Alice Templey, all those people that, the creators that I thought these are just one-offs and you're never going to get them. And then you meet Mary and she was so smart, is still so smart, so um, interested in people and interested yeah. in other people, interested in improving and self-reflective and no ego really. And all these sort of, these ideals that you would imagine aren't going to be wrapped up in a single person. And we thought, wow, and she's, she wants to, to, for us to pay her. <laughs> so yeah. So that's, so it, it, yeah. Mary Katransu was definitely the first um, highlight for me where, where she, she, she um, uh, became our, our first major client. Okay. Um, and then the second one of the three, I would say, um, was um, where one of our clients, Sophie Hume, um, yes. she was given, uh, Samantha Cameron gave um, Sophie's bag to the Chinese Premier's um, wife as a present. And that was sort of the uh, major, major, uh, of course, a major deal in the brand and a major deal ah. for, for Sophie. Um, can't imagine it happening now, but um, no, <laughs> at the time, well, 
were very 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 close and and it was it was an amazing experience an amazing thing for the for the brand um and and sort of seeing the, the way that, that Sophie managed her team that was so uh, akin to the way I would manage my team and and uh, and how yeah. generous and, and supportive she is uh, was and is uh, of her people and 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 how she deserved such success um, and then and then the last one I think is is um, uh, a brand that I'm, I'm uh, have been working with for the last few years is Safia um, where um, Megan uh, wore her her, her clothes um, one of her dresses um and you can then see what um impact um uh, some something like that happening to a brand um and and you think okay well that's just luck but there's a there's a the that golfer who said you know the 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 harder i practice the luckier i get um you have to be in the right place at the right time you have to be slogging away to be yeah. able to be in the position where someone like Meghan Markle thinks, oh, yeah, that could be a cool brand to be part of. Absolutely. Because it's not just about the clothes. Yeah. Um, yes. And so, yeah, and, and you know, Daniela deserves as much success as anybody in the world. So um, it, she, it, it, I think those three moments for me, it, those they were like highlights because they were brand highlights, not yeah. Yeah, particularly, although the first yeah. one was important for us because it was my first major client. But it's it's you know, it's it's um it's moments in a in a ten year career of lots of ups and downs and challenges and, and great times and, and Yeah, absolutely. What would be your worst experience? Just choose one. In my career or in the yeah, last Yeah. In your career. career. What's been like a low? Or what was super challenging but well, provided great learning? Um, I need to be careful um, what I say because this is a public forum. But when I met um, Angela Ahrens, okay, that, that to me was was a low point where I felt like my my time here at Burberry is ending. Aww. Because not because of she wasn't very nice. She was lovely and she's very smart and and uh, the, obviously the business continued to thrive uh, under her leadership. Um, but it was a different business. You know, I, yeah. I, I was I had been working for twelve years in a business that was was had the creative at its heart, uh, whereas Angela felt that the consumer should be at the heart of the business. Yeah, um, and it's an interesting strategy, and and proved, she was proved to be yes, she was proved to be um, to be right for her and right for the business. Um, yeah. But of course, coming from a the division of, of the creative, um, it wasn't right for me. I mean, uh, it, was, it was like oh well, that, that's that's the end of our our fun you know oh, <laughs> that's the end of our, yeah, our playtime and so it was the right thing to move on so the worst that's that was the worst time because i thought that that period of my life is going to end and i don't know what i'm going to do now right um, and then my uh, old um uh, friend from recruitment that I used to 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 use uh, Pat Lindo from uh, Style Incorporated. She um, she approached me at the, around that time saying, "Hey, there's this brand called Alice Temple, um, who are looking for a, a operations director. Do you know that brand?" I said, "I've never heard of them because at Burberry you you just lived and breathed Burberry. You never knew any yes. other brands. No, you didn't look um, up. And so I I went along and did. You you'll you'll be shocked at this, Fiona. I went into my interview." And I said to, to Lars, the, the, the CEO, who's Alice's husband, um, so Lars, tell me, um, Alice, tell me, what, what, what would be the, the core thing that you guys do? What, what is it you do? Now, can you imagine, Fiona, going to an interview, going to an interview, not even knowing what the brand what did? That's hilarious. You'd say that, you just get out. Yeah. Don't, don't even know absolutely. it. What did he say? What was his response? He said, well, we mainly red carpet dressing, and he sort of did the, did the spiel. Yeah, um, and I was like, oh, cool. so do you, are you going to expand the range? Is that what we're going? Yeah, well, that's really why we're doing it. We're looking at you because we're, we're potentially hire, potentially hiring this role because we're expanding. Um, and then Alice came in, and I was talking to her about my experience, and she asked some interesting questions. Uh, and then she went away, and I was like, oh, I must have blown it. You know, she's obviously just gone off and not interested. And then five minutes later, she came back with one of her her because her her father's a um he, he brews so he's uh, um there's uh, julian temple he's got a, a big um winery and and distillery um and she came back with one of his bottles three glasses cro- cracked open the open the liqueur the the apple liqueur she's like oh, do you want a drink sure yeah and i was like alice this is a professional meeting and at that moment i realized oh he wants me. He thinks that I'm the big shot from Burberry. Yeah. Whereas I'm thinking, oh, I'm never going to leave Burberry. No one will want me. 
you know, I've got no experience outside and you know what? of being in the army. You know? But you know what, Russell? He probably thought that you were testing him when you said, well, what yeah. is it you guys do? He probably just thought you already knew the answer. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> now, 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 to anybody listening to this, don't, this is bad. Like, don't, don't do this. <laughs> they think it would be hilarious. Because <laughs> there's so much don't... prep that goes into interviews these days. Exactly. It was a different don't... time. <laughs> First of all, don't, don't try and do some research on your on your potential uh, <laughs> employer before you go and see them. Second of all, if you're interviewing someone, please don't go and open a bottle of liqueur and offer the candidates a, a drink. <laughs> it was a different era, though, wasn't it? Well, it was a different era, and the internet wasn't quite where it is today. Yeah. So it was still, you know, a teenager. It struck the right. It struck the right tone, <laughs> and and it was it was it was a. a uh, this beginning of a, of a of a relationship that I really cherish. She was she's again a, a, a genius and deserves far more success than she's had. She's she's an amazing amazing person. And what would you say um, are the most important personality traits to your work? That's an interesting um, question, isn't it? Resilience. Good answer. As a consultant, resilience. Yeah. People, yeah. people come and say, "Oh, oh I want to I want to be a consultant," and I say, "Okay." Um, have you ever sold anything? No. I'm a product developer. No. I'm a finance controller. No. I'm a whatever I am, production manager. Right. Well, consultants sell all day, every day. You sell yourself. You sell the next meeting. You sell the idea of, of working with another client. And you're always selling. And um, so resilience to the fact that you have to keep selling. Um, otherwise, you have the, the the famous feast and famine of a consultant. You 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 got you 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 go through periods where you, that you did when you're at the beginning of your career, where you you can't move for jobs and you can't move for candidates and you can't if if you could clone yourself five times, you'd still be busy. To times where you you know you couldn't get arrested, let alone get a hire get hired for a for a gig. Mm. So um, it, it's. To avoid those things, you have to keep selling, keep selling. So resilience, number one. Um, number two, staying positive when all around you are negative. Yeah. Um, and that's that's really important because really important. Um, everybody, it's so, it's so. Especially at the moment. Yeah. Like, stop sulking, you know. I know. Coronavirus is not I'll, your fault. I'll tell you, you know, a funny, <laughs> I, yeah. And it's funny you say that because I'll tell you an interesting thing that happened to me um, during this time. We did, we've launched a little webinar for people wanting to um, revamp their CVs um, and also pivot slightly either within the industry or outside the industry. Mm-hmm. So we've been running a three-part uh, three series. And um, when we first marketed it out, um, a contact of mine on LinkedIn came back and basically um, used it as an opportunity to throw a tantrum at me for the lack of jobs. And I was kind of like, wow. <laughs> um, I was a bit shocked and I was kind of it's, like... It's totally your fault that there are no jobs, right? I now. know. <laughs> all those jobs and putting them in a drawer. Yeah, I was kind of like, uh, yeah, we're feeling the pain. But we're also trying to do something to help. And I think absolutely being really positive and um, just doing things, all the different little things that you can do to help people. The feedback from the webinar has been amazing. You know, there are people out there in all different situations and it might not have been relevant to him. And as I said to him in my message back, pass it by if it doesn't appeal to you, but don't, don't take the opportunity to um, criticize because that's a really bad reflection. So especially in the public domain. Yeah, you have to you have to stay positive. You, you do. Stay. And, you and do. You, because otherwise, like, what's the point? Then, yeah. then, then, then don't bother. Not be lashing out at people. Or, that doesn't though that doesn't mean that you can't call out bad behavior it doesn't mean that you can't call out issues that that people don't want to hear that doesn't mean that you can't absolutely warn about things that could be issues they have to be constructive you can't just it say must. oh that supplier will probably deliver late <laughs> well okay so if you think that what are you going to do about it that's the beginning of the conversation not the end you know absolutely. you don't say oh that that guy will be late and that'll be it. And then, so then go, go home. No. Yeah. <laughs> so what can do? My question would be, well, why? And if you're, if you're dealing with, if you're liaising with somebody and you're in charge of that communication, then you should know already along the line what the reality of the situation is anyway. Really? So. Yeah. So positivity, know. I think, yeah, resilience, positivity um, are the two. And then 
probably as a consultant, probably um, uh, an understanding that um, you can't please all the people all the time. Yes, you know, and, you and 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 not every client is going to be your client, and it isn't because you are not very good that they don't want to use you. It's because maybe they're not ready. Um, maybe there's another somebody else. Maybe there's a, just got a other things situation. going on. Who knows? Yeah, you never know. It's very easy to um, it's very easy to take it personally, uh, and it very actually very rarely is. Um, very rarely, it's uh, usually just other circumstances. So yeah. absolutely, who would be the most inspiring manager that you've worked for? Um, I would say uh, Rosemary Bravo and the person who, who I was direct reporting to, which is Michelle Smith. Um, okay. I've had that many times, that duo. Yeah, yeah, they were, they were something else. Yeah, and I feel so privileged to have spent eight years um, under their leadership. Yeah. Um, but I, I today still use things that I taught I was taught by Michelle and the attitude she had wow. and the and the and the strategic um planning and the 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 uh, motivation um that Rosemary had and, and Miss Bravo had and, and yeah so the, I'd say those two were my most inspirational uh, managers I think yeah I think Clemency Budenhagen said yeah, exactly the same Michelle, thing because yeah. you were both there at the same time and yeah. uh, she she said exactly the same thing. I know she holds Michelle in some people very high esteem. Yeah, some people didn't like Michelle. Um, and I, I was know. Really, I know when I, when I uh, when when Burberry split the, the the company into divisions, which by the way was yeah. a, a genius move uh, on the part yeah. of Rosemary, is to create. Yeah. And this is this is what you sometimes see with massive businesses um, is that they become. Uh, a bit like um, dinosaurs, or they become a, like they can't move on, um, yeah. and it's because they have they, they, there's no there's no competition. There's not they, they they've got the market sewn up, and so why bother? Yes. Whereas yes. she created internal competition, um, so she div- she she di- she di- uh, divisionalized the company. So she rather than having the merchandising department there was women's wear and within women's wear you had a merchandising department and within men's there was merchandising and within accessories there was merchandising so there was three merchandising departments all doing the same thing slightly differently and you'd think well that's really inefficient why would you do that that's like splitting everything three ways but it was great because the business needed anyway that team of people and that meant that you wanted to be the best you wanted to be the best merchandising department you wanted to have the figures much better than the other guys you wanted to have the margin you wanted to beat them on margin you wanted to beat them on sell through you know you wanted to beat them all the time whereas if you have one merchandising department who are you going to beat nobody so you're right from style and it's the blueprint for most brands as they grow. That's how yeah, people find. Yeah, it's divisionalized. She, she was, she was, um, she was vilified a little bit because she was seen as someone who's a real hard taskmaster. She wanted, right. she wanted the women's wear division to be the best because the Bur- Burberry was known for accessories. It was. Um, the women's was nothing. It was accessories and then men's wear and then there was this little little women. It was the correlation. And her and Rosemary said, this brand has to be a women's wear driven brand if it's going to be successful. Yeah. Um, and so she had to turn it around. So she was a turnaround within a turnaround. And so everybody yeah. from the old guard was like, oh, God, you're going for work, Michelle. <laughs> Good luck. She's awful. She's a, a real firecracker. She'll get you working 24 hours a day. Nothing like, okay, good. <laughs> well, how bad is it going to be? And, and yeah. they're always, um, nearly always, um, perfectly nice, friendly, happy, no problem. As long as you did what you said you were going to do and as long as you kept your promises and you didn't overpromise and you didn't make it up, um, you'd be fine. But if yeah. you didn't, if you, if you just BS'd her, if yeah, you, you couldn't wing it, promises, she doesn't stand, she would take no yeah, prisoners. she would take your part. Right yeah. and, and That's I'm fair. Sure. I'd like to think that in, in a small way, I've sort of emulated that a little bit, where, where you can yeah. see when someone's giving you BS and, and you, you yeah. know, that's, that's when I push. I don't, I don't push normally. Yeah, but I think that's fair. I think at the end of the day, she's there to run, she was there to run a business. And I think yeah. that's a, you know, that is how it should be. You know, put your hands up, just be honest, play it straight, and you're always going to be okay. It's generally the case with most bosses. And then that leads me on to the next question, actually. Who was your least inspiring boss? Did you have a least inspiring boss? Because so far they've all been quite positive. <laughs> you know what? When I, I didn't really care much about bosses. No. Um, 
I, I, I don't know how it, it seems to be that, that I sort of have a, inherited a bit of a sort of an arrogant streak where I feel like, well, um, either you can teach me something or you can't. If you can't teach me anything, I'm, I'm going to sort of ignore you, really, uh, <laughs> as a boss, as a boss. Uh, not, as a, not normal, normal people, but as, you know, if, 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 yeah. if, if you're my boss, then, OK, we're going to teach me nothing. OK, then I'll just ignore you and just do what I want. Um, and look for someone who's going to inspire me and teach me and lead me, um, and and hope that this person who's cause, who's causing calling themselves my boss doesn't hang around too long, <laughs> and, and that's it. You know, that's all you can do. I think you so many people complain about their boss. They do. Um, there was a there's this brilliant book that I I try I think I've probably given away about a dozen copies of, uh, which is um, the secrets. Uh, was it called uh, uh, Rules of Work? Rules of Work. work yeah. Um, and it has a chapter on how to deal with a, 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 a not a very good boss, and, and uh, it's 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 very very good. It gives you great advice because it's it's so easy to get sucked into like this is unfair and they're not treating me very nicely Absolutely. or whatever, rather than thinking you know what they're not going to teach me anything, um, so I'm just going to move on from them and try and work with other people. Yeah, uh, that's find right. Someone who is inspirational. Absolutely, and I think that's very good advice. What would you say are the factors that contribute to the most successful teams and brands, you know, through your experience? What's been, what has been the, the main contributory factor? Uh, number one, a feeling of, say, of being able to have, be in a safe space where you can say things to each other um, yeah. rather than talking behind each other's back. That's good. That's so good. easy, so easy. So um, it's a poison that goes into a company, it's a big company, where people say, oh, well, well, I would never say it to their face, but have you noticed? Mm. Like, no. No, I haven't noticed, and let's talk about it. Let's bring them here, and let's talk about it. Let's say that to their face, and let's mm. call it out. And let's not give it any power, because actually, when it, comes, when it comes to it, when people realise that the, the, a business doesn't tolerate gossip and doesn't tolerate politics, then it's actually quite easy to, to manage the day-to-day -day world. But you need yeah. to give people that safe space, and that cut starts from the leader down. Yeah, um, it does. Two, I think, to um, understand what people's motivations are for working there. Yes. Very, very often... Um, businesses assume that people's motivations for working at the place is money. But in fact, I've found over my career, it's the least important thing that most people think about. People don't very, very rarely move from one job to another just because they pay more. I mean, they obviously do it occasionally, but, but it's mainly because of some problem in the existing company or some opportunity in the new company that doesn't exist in the existing company. Yeah. And so as long as you understand what the motivation is of your employees to stay there, then you know what to be able to do with them. So yeah. if the motivation is progression and is, 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 is learning things, then as long as you're keeping on teaching them and keeping on getting them to, be, to, to progress, mm -hmm. then they're going to be happy and not going to leave. Yeah. And they're going to be good team members and, and they're not going to be resentful of people coming up and you know, challenging them too. Whereas yeah. if you have someone who's a little bit resentful and not very happy and probably wants to move on, then again, that's a bit of a cancer that gets into a company. When it comes to hiring and recruitment, how can brands and businesses identify and harness the best talent, especially at the moment? Hire slowly and fire quickly, I think. Um, take more consideration yes. when you're hiring um, and say it like it is when the person needs to leave. Yeah, so that's fair. Many, so, many business, so many people, um, I mean, I, I have being in recruitment on a sort of either in recruitment or or being a, a recruiter uh, yeah. for 25 years and i've had thousands of interviews as i'm sure you have too more than me um and i know how to interview because i was trained how to interview um but very few managers are trained you know, certainly right. brand owners aren't trained how to interview so when i interview candidates then they with with um a brand owner sometimes in in the room they realize oh Oh, that's how you have to interview a person. Mm. I just spend like ten minutes with them and ask them, you know, what what they what they did, um, and that's that, and decide whether they whether they think they're any good. Well, it's what they did. Well, how is that going to help you? What 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 was um, yeah? How does how does ASOS do their digital marketing? They can tell you, but that doesn't mean you then you're more informed as to whether you want to hire the digital marketing manager from ASOS. You've got to decide whether they want to come and work for you and what they're motivated by and, and, and how they're going to be as an employee, how they're going to fit in with the team and what they're going to offer you, mm. not what they've 
necessarily done. I mean, it's important, but it's not the be all and end all. No, there's no the the moment. Take more than 10 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Then, then, then there's the flip side of, you know, they've been here six months. They've been, done a really terrible job, but I hope one day they're going to get better. In the meantime, we're going to have to hire four more people to do what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and I don't really have the heart to tell them anything different. And then thank God, then finally, they finally leave. Mm. Oh, you, you, you're, that's being unfair on the person yeah. because you're holding them back from getting a job that they're really motivated to do. Yeah. And you're also holding them back by improving, by saying to them, look, this isn't working out. And you're spending money on hiring four people to do the job that they should be doing anyway. Um, it's, it's, all, it's all just crazy. Yeah. So just bite the bullet and tell them that it's not working. Yeah, totally. Absolutely agree. Many industries at the moment are being impacted by the pandemic. In a perfect world, how is the fashion landscape going to evolve? Where do you think, um, what do you think the social and environmental impact um, needs to be as sustainability becomes ever more important? How do brands need to move forward? Yeah, I think... um... I think they'll, you, you, you will look, I mean, it's too early to tell now, but I think you, we will look back at this 2020 period and in five years, 10 years time and say, yeah, there was terrible disaster for six months, but actually there was also some positive change from it. And there was some, yeah. some, some, some good things that have come out. There will be some good things that come out of it. Um, I think one of the good things will come out of it is that um, people will question more. You know, people will question their lifestyle more. People will question getting on the 7.30 train in the morning, coming home at 8 o'clock at night. You know, is that the right, five days well, a week? Well, that's happened already, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, people don't yeah. want to go back to that. No, people will question consuming for consumerists' sake. Like, what's the yeah. point? Well, I, I, I don't want to, In order to get a, work, a, more, a better work-life balance, you have to work fewer hours and maybe you have to earn less money in order to if you earn less money you then probably need to buy fewer things if you want to buy fewer things you need to be more thoughtful and more um more selective about the things you buy which then leads to the fact that you need to buy more sustainably um and i think that um like there was a a a conversation i had 20 years ago 15 years ago and it was at Burberry, and, and we were talking about, uh, we were all having a laugh in our weekly trading meeting about uh, internet shops yeah. um, and about the things that you can buy on the internet and books and things from Amazon. And people were saying, oh, yeah, one day, one day, who knows, maybe Burberry will have an internet shop. And everybody's like, oh, yes, isn't that funny? Burberry having an internet shop. Who would think that? No way. No, no, there's internet shops. And then there's, there's fashion brands. And fashion brands, you can only, or luxury brands, you can only have a luxury brand face-to-face. Nobody will, will want to buy uh, a raincoat or a handbag or anything uh, online. That's just not going to happen. Um, and, of course, now it's, it's, it's ubiquitous. And I think the same will be said, the same can be said for, for sustainable brands. No, I, don't, I think in, in 10 years' time, hopefully sooner, there won't be any sustainable brands. Every brand, if it's, if it's going to be still in business, will have to be transparently sustainable. And what I mean by that is there's not going to be a pass or a fail sustainable. There's just going to be like, well, this is what we do. And this is how we make things. This is what we, this is, this is how much tax we pay. This is how much we give back. And these are our, these are our, um, these are our credentials. So you have to, as a consumer, choose how um, you want to spend your money. Um, Um, And I think that's, that's any brand that doesn't think that, that thinks it's a trend, thinks it's a fad, thinks it's about um, making sure that you have a percentage of your, uh, of your turnover go to carbon offset, um, unfortunately, unless they change their mind, is, is not going to be successful in the, uh, in the years to come. There's a very interesting book called Impact by Sir Ronald Cohen. Yeah. And he writes in there that um, the whole way um, businesses are... Uh, held accountable through their financial reporting will change um, over the course of the next five to ten years where the um, measurables in terms of social and environmental impact will become increasingly essential and will governments then reward businesses for um, ensuring that those um, elements are measured within the way their business operates he says in there that it will become very obvious to businesses that there's only one path 
um, and therefore everything will change. So I think that's uh, that's something that's important. I shared the I've shared a link to Impact on our blog um, about a month ago because it's a fascinating read. So hopefully, people it's already. I mean, it's already happening. You got that. You got that um, what is it? Carbon exchange. You got that. That that PNL. Um, the the um, exactly as you described basically is 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 it already exists in the US. But I think it's it's going to be yeah, five to ten years feels like a really long time, but it's actually a blink of an eye when it comes to the... Yeah, the time goes so but fast. I think, but I think it's, it's, it's moving towards that, isn't it? It's, it's it trying is to what he says. Actually, it's, yeah. not, it's, it's, a very, it's a pretty blunt measure is to say whether a company's profitable or not is, is whether it's a success or not. Um, and there are two... There's a type of a company that's a non-profit company. Yeah. And a company, and the non-profit is not supposed to be... is not success in terms of a, a financial, it's some other thing. Whereas yeah. it's so much less binary than that and so much more nuanced. And, and yeah, so this much is what different. he says. Um, it, the measurables yeah, will change. Yeah, it won't just be about making cold hard profit. That won't be it anymore. Um, he says it's all shifting already. Um, and he talks a lot about investment because he comes from an investment background and from a hedge fund background. And he talks about the fact that all the hedge funds want to be invested in renewables um, and how that then filters down through traditional industries. Fascinating stuff. And some of the projects and initiatives that have been started by just ordinary people who are passionate about something and have decided to launch a project and it turns into an incredible thing and gathers traction and momentum because it's so relevant. So there's a lot of incredible things that are going on around the world. And he highlights quite a few of them in this book. It's fascinating stuff. So um, I think that um, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I, my, my business partner, Malta, um, he, he's far more uh, avid reader than I am. I, I very rarely pick up trading. I mean, I struggled just to read Drapers, let alone anything else. And, <laughs> I'd like to. I'd like to blame my children, but Malta's got three children, and I've only got two, so he's not even. Can, I, not even can I tell you something really funny? I'll tell you how that came about. Me reading this book. So I read on my iPhone or on my iPad because I read everything on iBooks. For me, that's easier. Yeah. Um, but I happened to during lockdown. I happened to flick the TV on while I was eating lunch one day, and I just stumbled into the middle of this interview on Sky with this guy. I didn't know who he was, mm. and. It was so interesting what he was saying. That's how I came to find the book. And it wasn't even out. I had to pre-order it on Apple, (laughs) on on iBooks. And then they delivered it. And I I started reading it. I couldn't put it down. It was just, it's captivating. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I think it's it's rare, isn't it, when you get a sort of a technical book like that. that Yeah. I'm going to send a link to Martin that you said that. Talking of children, I can hear my. my I can hear yours. Yeah. Um, I can't, wait get, I can't wait to get back to normal work, let alone working from home. Um, oh. I can't wait for them to get back to school. That's a nice. That'd be a nice. Next day. week? Is it next uh, week? No, no, no. Thursday. Thursday. Oh, Thursday. Two, two that's days, good. Days. Two, two more days. Same day, as, same day as my wife and I's tenth wedding anniversary. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, be a good, good um, Yeah, sanity will be restored. So we've got to the very end of this, and and my final question would be. If you could work with or for anyone, who'd be your dream brand? It could be your own. It could be somebody you admire. And who would be the three people that you would absolutely want to have in your team? They can be absolutely anybody. They can be famous. They could be dead. It could be someone you're working with now. Well, I don't really want to work for any fashion brand at all. It's going to be Um, your own then. So, so I, and I, I would never want to start my own brand okay. um, because I'm not talented enough. Um, so I would, I would work, if I, if I had to work for a company, I think I'd work for Jaguar. Would you? Uh, yeah, Jaguar Land Rover. Very um, interesting answer. Yeah, because um, they are British um, yeah. and I'm British um, and they're creative and they have a long heritage of, of being creative and affordable and, and um, beautiful, designing and creating beautiful things. And they are leading the world in their, te- their, their electric te- cars technology. Mm. Um, and yeah, they're, they're sort of the, the last, even though they're owned by an Indian company, they're the last British 
car manufacturer, you know, in a way. Um, and so I think I'd probably work for them. But um, but from, for in terms of a team, um, yeah, I, I I read this question, and it's a it's a it's a difficult question because I I can't imagine how it. It's like what is it? The thing that, that give me a, a the, the idea of a brief, a very specific brief, because you can you can you can do something with that. Whereas design anything, then you're sort of stuck, aren't you? <laughs> you, know, if you? You can choose anybody, you're stuck. I think probably Winston Churchill would have to be in there. Okay. Um, in terms of his um, enthusiasm and passion and uh, sort of determination. Yeah. Um, I think Rosemary Bravo for her strategy and her seeing what could be done creatively. Yeah. Um, Alice Templey as a creative director. I think I've never met anybody better. Um, That's my my business partner is a, is going to sneak in as a fourth because every good business <laughs> has to have a consultant. Okay. And and Malta is the best consultant I know, including me. He's, oh, he's far far better than me. Um, he can he can right. see something in businesses that everybody around the table says, "What are you talking about, Malta?" And by the time he's finished, they'll be like, "Oh my god, why didn't we think of this earlier? This is really obvious. <laughs> we should be doing this." Oh. So yeah, he's he's the genius of the of the outfit, and I'm very very blessed and 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 uh, thankful that I I met him at Templey. Um, yeah, helped me on my my career in the last fifteen years. So. That's amazing. That's a really, I mean, thank you for today. It's been so interesting to listen to all your views and thoughts and insights. And I hope everyone listening will really enjoy this. But thank you very much. It's been brilliant. My pleasure. Thank you for for organising it, Fiona. It's been fun. Pleasure. Inspired by his acting family, having grown up surrounded by creative minds, Russell walks us through a fascinating career. After failing his A-levels, having discovered girls and cars, he took a gap year, intending to resit his exams and go to university, but instead landed a role in customer services during the rise of Burberry, progressing through the ranks under the inspirational leadership of Rosemary Bravo and Michelle Smith, before moving on to Templey 12 years later, as Burberry pivoted from a design-led business to a customer-focused business. Russell shares insights into what makes a brand tick, namely the people, and how both people and data are treated is critical to the success of the business in today's market. He shares a hilarious interview experience at Templey and talks about the importance of communication, engaged leadership and effective team structures. We also discuss how brand messaging and engagement in sustainable practices is being driven by consumer consciousness, something you can find out more about in Sir Ronald Cohen's book, Impact, which offers a fascinating insight into how business is evolving and is a must read for anyone inspired to make a difference in any large or small way. If you enjoyed this episode, join me next time when I will be speaking with Ashley Marsh from Rafa about how the pandemic is impacting the cycling revolution. And if you are enjoying the series, hit the subscribe button to receive notifications on upcoming episodes where you'll get to hear first-hand insights from across the global fashion and creative industries.